Wonder Things Studios proudly presents Archivos Insights, conversations with today's storytellers. You've tuned in to the Archivos Podcast Network. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Marie Bilodeau. And you're listening to Archivos Insights. Archivos Insights is a podcast featuring conversations with the stellar luminaries of the storytelling firmament, riddled with cultures and stories and myths that we can't wait to chat about. We're all striving to refine and improve our storytelling mojo, and what better way to do that than to ask veteran storytellers about their processes? Absolutely. I couldn't possibly agree more. And and that is the goal here at the Archivos Podcast Network, to delve into the heart of story and uncover the, the, the secret passageways and the wonders therein. Ms. Bilodeau, always a delight to share a Skype line with you, madam. How are you this evening? I am doing wonderful, and how are you doing, Mr. Robison? This <laughs> sounds so civil. How unlike us. <laughs> Just because we can't swear anymore because we're PG-13, I know, it? right? We're, we're, we're all Ward Cleaver in June now. It's like, yes, it's very proper. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll get past that quickly enough. Uh, and, and nothing can get us past civility quicker than a, a good stalkerish intro. What say you, Marie? Oh, I love when I hear you stalk people, so please go to it. <laughs> uh, it is it is my singular pleasure. Well, Marie, there are, and this will make sense as we go forward, but, but it has occurred to me that there are two broad types of actors in the world, acting processes. There's the method actor and the technique actor. Now, both types produce fabulous performances, but technique actors work from the outside in. They allow gesture and expression and appearance to inform their performance. Now, on the other hand, the method actor feels and internalizes the role and allows those inner workings to manifest and project outwards. And recently, I've found that I think writers actually have a similar distinction. Um, I met a writer at Gen Con uh, a couple weeks ago who has done astonishing works across all mediums with these incredible licensed properties. You know, Star Wars, Star Trek. Oh, my God. Um, Amazing stuff. But this person was very nonchalant and blasé about their achievements and, and the properties they worked for. There are actors who just feel no romance for the writer's craft. They're committed. They're dedicated and create marvelous works. But I think they're like technique actors in that regard, which is totally legit. I'm not casting aspersions, but I am setting up a contrast between that sort of approach and that of our guest host for this episode of Archivos Insights. She, friends, is a method writing actor. Method actor writing? She she does method actor writing all the way, 100%. Uh, and apparently has been doing it for a very long time. Uh, when she was nine years old, she compiled her first handmade book comprised of a few illustrated short stories, some <laughs> very dark for a nine-year-old poetry, uh, and some transcribed family folklore. So she was already into story. And this fascination with storytelling persisted through grade school and high school, expanding to include theater and role-playing games. What a shock. I'm stunned, as I'm sure you all are as well. 
In fact, uh, during her tenure at Saugus High School in Santa Clarita, uh, she started submitting her work for publication, amassing a tidy stack of rejection letters from Shauna McCarthy at Realms of Fantasy. But in spite of those submissions, she hadn't really considered writing as a career. She was far more interested in the cultural and societal structures and underpinnings that inform storytelling. This led her to get her bachelor's degree in anthropology and folklore from the University of Pennsylvania in 2001, and then continue for her master's degree from Indiana University. Now, she distinguished herself during her academic pursuits with a Penn Alumni Continuing Education Award in 2001, so she clearly had a knack for scholastic pursuits. But it was also during this time that writing became more than just a creative dalliance. Her writing became her coping mechanism for the rigors of academia. And she discovered, through the delight and freedom that writing gave her, that she could take the growing awareness and insight she was acquiring through her studies and ground it into her fiction. She started submitting again, and this time got some acceptances, including one from Daily Science Fiction. She went on to attend and graduate from the 2012 Clarion West Writers' Workshop. She even worked as an assistant editor in the science fiction section of the Los Angeles Review of Books. But it would be role-playing games that would inspire her first novel. Now, many of us have been known from time to time to write stories based on the adventures of our characters and RPGs, and our guest host was no different. But while most of us stop after a few stories, she persisted, and she persisted, until she had over 40,000 words on paper. Now, this was the single largest body of words in a single fictional work she had ever achieved, and she was still excited about writing the story which, by the way, is always a good indicator when asking the question, should I write this? Are you still excited? <laughs> yes, I am. Then by God, write it. And the answer was yes. And thus began an exhaustive regimen of research and reworking that ultimately culminated in The Dragons of Heaven, being published in 2015 by Angry Robot Books. It was followed by The Conclave of Shadow, also from Angry Robot in 2016, continuing the saga of Missy Masters. Now, she's continued to have short fiction published, adding to the illustrious canon of Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Crossed Genres, and Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. And she's also started doing freelance game design for Green Ronin Publishing, working on their Game of Thrones and Dragon Age lines. Holy crap. Now, friends, if you speak with her for even a moment, and we will, very shortly, I promise, I swear, I'm almost done. <laughs> you will discover that you are in the presence of someone who deeply feels the work she creates. There's a spark in the eye, the, the subtle leaning forward into the topic at hand, and the characteristic flailing of hands and gestures endemic of both a theater person and a passionate creator. While her technique is superb, there can be no doubt, she's a method writer all the way. Now, she can make a fully boned Victorian corset in only six hours. 
Her culinary kryptonite is dim sum, and she's always on the lookout for great cart-delivered dim sum joints, so if you know any, do let her know. And she has literally been to the end of the earth, taking planes, trains, buses, postal trucks, and bikes to get there, whereupon she dangled her feet over the ocean and watched the birds as she ate lunch. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here in the Archivos Podcast Network virtual studios, Alice Helms. Alice, God, we connected like a year ago at Gen Con, and it's taken this long to get you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your patience, and I'm so glad you had the time to come on board. We're, we're very grateful. Thank you so much for having me, and I, I want you to introduce me for everything I ever do for the rest of my life. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I, I'm told I have a future as a herald if this podcasting thing doesn't work out. You you seriously do. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Good. I, I, I feel like I'm doing like superhero origin stories for our guest hosts because you, you totally are. I, I wanted to ask you, Alyssa, real quick before we start the timer and our formal interview. Um, there's a project that is referenced on your website that I'm deeply curious about. Um, and I'm going to mispronounce it, I'm sure. Toledoplex? Uh, the Toledoplex. Um, that sounds much yes. better. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Just give us an overview of what that represents for you. Uh, yeah, so that's the thing I came up with Oh God, probably about a decade ago now. And it was a way of me kind of conceptually creating a framework for how I view stories in the storytelling process. And especially, I have, I have friends who have a, a fetish for originality. Uh, they don't like an idea unless it's completely original. They, you know, they won't pursue it. And for me, I actually have kind of a counter fetish for originality. I'm really interested in taking the things that we know, the the you know tropes that we know very well, stories that we've heard a billion times, and either telling them in a new and interesting way or executing them just amazingly so that you go, wow, I've read a billion heist, you know, novels, but that is the heist novel to end all heist novels. Like I love <laughs> doing that. And uh, so the Talitaplex is my way of modeling, you know, there's so much out there that we kind of bring into ourselves, all the, all the data, all the things that we learn about, and we bring into ourselves and the way that we juxtapose and synergize that information. And then the way we put it out again into the world is very much like this mechanism of a telitoplex. So you've got a kaleidoscope where everything's internal and you're seeing just the internal movement of the beads or the glass or whatever. You've got a kaleidoplex where it takes that internal stuff and it projects it on an outward screen. Okay. Um, you've got, I think I've got this right. You've got a telitoscope which takes outside images and you see those inside the machine jumbled around. And so the natural progression to that would be a telitoplex where you take outside images, you jumble them around in the telitoplectic mechanism, and then you project it outside onto the world again. And part of what happens then is that you'll get a feedback loop because what you're projecting out into the world has been mixed up, but it 
comes back in through your intake gets jumbled around again and gets put out again. It's like so a circular reference in code. Exactly. And and so that's kind of my my little model I came up with and my word that I came up with uh, to describe what I feel like my process is, is I'm uh, taking stuff that I see in the world and bringing it around and mixing it around my own telidoplectic mechanism. I'm putting it back out there, <laughs> but everything I put back out, I'm also kind of taking in and reinterpreting and reengaging with and remixing. Well, it sounds like you're you're actually you've create you're, you're analyzing the creative engine that you, that this is a, a an essential exploration of how we create stuff in terms of the input that we receive, how we process it, and then how it goes out in the form of creative things. Exactly, and and for me, it it really gets to the what each individual can bring to the creative process because everybody's going to take that intake, mix it up differently, look at different things that are important to them and, you know, put out a product that is entirely unique. And the the synthesis that you do when you're kind of creating that product and the synthesis you do as you're creating the product, because of course everything when it meets execution changes amazing, you know. <laughs> Inevitably. Inevitably. <laughs> Inevitably. All of that just is is exciting and interesting to me. And it's why even when I get scared about writing and, you know, uh, get into the place where oh, I don't have anything to say, I've got nothing new, I've got nothing original, um, like, why am I even bothering at this? I can say no, because I'm the only person who can jumble this stuff around <laughs> the way I am. Very cool. Yeah. Is that is that is this just a thought form, a, a conceptual uh, visualization, or is there actually any tangible work that you've been doing? With, <laughs> to, I just got to say this word: telidoplectic work. That is such an awesome <laughs> word. Oh my god! <laughs> telidoplectic. It's a lot of fun to say. It yeah. is. <laughs> um, so I and I think I wrote about this that I have this idea that I would be able to make like a physical version of this of you know taking cameras and and being able to like you know do that um i don't i used to have access to that technology but uh my partner and i broke up and he took the camera with him um, <laughs> so so i i that, that's been put on the back burner but i do feel like um there's a literary project in particular that it was what i was working on when i came up with this idea and that being forefront in my mind was what I was thinking about as I worked on it. And so I, you see it reflected a lot or okay. I see it reflected a lot in the piece. <laughs> Nobody else you know, might. And there's a little bit of it out in the world, which is my story with uh, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, which is a screech of gulls. Mm. And uh, that's a little piece of the larger world that I'm, I have written this novel on. I'm now revising it. And that's called Chiaroscuro. Ooh, also so, a fabulous yeah. word. Love yes. that word. Yes. Yeah, we could we could talk about the Telidoplex. Uh, we need to have you back. We'll just talk about that, okay? All right. Because uh, that's fascinating, because that really speaks to to what we're about here, is, is getting down to the heart and the essence of, of that creative process. And, and honestly, you know, harnessing it in some way, or at least working in flow with it, so that when you run into those blocks, as you described, you have a process that can see you through them safely. That's, that's just fascinating, but let's, let's, let's do, let's light, let's, let's roll directly into, into the interview <laughs> proper here. Now that we've done our telidoplectic explorations. Yes. That's my new word. Uh, I'm just going to set the clock here. Spread it wide. Oh yes. Make, make it, make it a, make it a meme, make it exactly. a meme. 
And let's start our interview with Alyss Helms. Um, Alyss, I want to start off. Uh, uh, you did an interview with the Quillery uh, back in 2015 uh, where you talked about how you tend to uh, uh, structure early on in your drafting process. And structures and patterns seem to be a, a significant aspect of your of the way you engage with story, looking for those those rhythms, those cadences of narrative and so on. And I was wondering... Do you find as you craft a story and you start working out these structural beats in advance that there are, and I don't know how to describe this exactly, but uh, like consistent structures or, or standard patterns for different types of, of story or genre of story. And, and, you know, it could be like beats in a sci-fi versus fantasy, or we can look at like mystery versus action or adventure. But are there some high level observations of those patterns that you've, that you've found? Uh, so that's an interesting question. I guess, I think it depends on how you define structure or talking about structure. So sometimes when I'm talking about structure, I'm just talking about like the, the three-act structure, the five-act structure, which sure. is pretty much endemic through Western narrative. There's, there's you know, pockets of like literary fiction and, you know, definitely experimental stuff in genre fiction that, that don't engage in that. But, you know, so that's one kind of thing. And I know there's another kind of uh, structure that's it's in Chinese and Japanese literature that's i'm going to mangle the i'm going to mangle what it's called it's a, a kisho kisho tenketsu which is this four act or four panel structure that is a no conflict structure so western narrative or you know this kind of three act five act you know uh exposition rising action climax falling action resolution the thing that we all are so familiar with sure pretty much rides on or depends on conflict and so um this Japanese form is no conflict, and the way it works is that you start with one panel that establishes an introduction, it introduces a story. You have a second panel or act or what have you that develops it, and then you have a third panel or act. And the reason I'm saying panel is that you can illustrate this very easily in manga, and there's a lot of manga that does this. You have a third panel or act that introduces like a twist or a, a non sequitur, something that seems to have nothing to do with the original two panels. So it, it creates a it creates a tension in the reader because you don't know what these two have to do with each other. Almost so there's confusion. no conflict. Sure. Yeah, okay. Exactly. So there's no conflict in the story, but there's a kind of meta tension. Uh, and then the fourth panel brings them together and resolves that tension. And so like an example would be like the first panel would be a girl getting on a bus and the second panel would be a girl riding a bus and the third panel would be some other completely different girl sitting at a cafe and then the fourth panel would be the girl from the bus arriving at the cafe right okay. so it's a story and but there's no conflict but there is a tension because you're wondering what the cafe has to do with the bus it's almost like an uh, exploration of connectivity it's like this exactly. is connected this is connected this will be connected i promise so you get that sort of promise <laughs> of of things and if you're smart enough you'll see it and then the fourth panel fulfills on that promise interesting exactly and uh i have not six i've i've I was introduced to this by a, a friend of mine, a fellow writer, uh, Corey Scary, and uh, I I don't th know that he has succeeded in uh, doing an effective one of these. I know I have not yet succeeded in doing effective one of these, but it's fun to play around with something that isn't the five act 
or the three act. And I don't think I am actually answering your question. <laughs> no, that's it, it was a weird question to begin with, Alyssa. Well, and and I, I understand that, that you know, I, I might be asking for, you know, some sort of master pattern. It's like the master plots concept. Uh, and I honestly don't know. But I, I can imagine that the, the progression of a mystery story, whether it's fantasy, sci-fi, or whatever, or a heist novel, you invoked heist novels uh, and stories yeah. earlier, they would have a different, or maybe they wouldn't, I don't know, I guess that's my question, is is there is there a different beat to different types of stories, or is there pretty much this universal pulse that runs through all of them? Um, I mean, I think, yes, that there's there's different ways of, of putting together the pattern, right? So, talking about heist stories, and this is funny because I'm uh, designing a heist game that I am running tomorrow. Ooh. And so I, that's why I mentioned it is because I, my mind is all in the heist right now. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there are things that you do to make a good heist game or heist story that you wouldn't do in, you know, like an epic fantasy or grimdark or other kinds of stories, because the heist really focuses on it's it's like competence porn, right? right it's right. focusing on yeah. people really excellent at what they do, doing what they do excellently, with a, a side of when they run into complications, being able to uh, problem solve. Like so, it's also problem solving porn, given only the things they have in front of them. Right. And so you know, it's it's a chance to let people shine. Whereas I think in you know something like uh, epic fantasy, there's a lot more setbacks have more stakes. Mm-hmm. I guess you know that sure. the people have to suffer a lot more, and and pulp so, yeah. would have this this increasing grandeur of of <laughs> scope and magnitude and oh my god and all of that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It was. It, I I just I'm fascinated by you know like you the the, the patterns of storytelling, uh, uh, mm-hmm. and and how that evolves. I'm I'm intrigued by. I'm going to have to look up and find out how to pronounce and spell that that. Yeah, I mean, I can I can spell thing. it out for you now, and then everybody can go look for it. There you go, uh, go for if it. They want it's K I S H O with the line over it, so it's the long O. Mm-hmm. Uh, T E N K E T S U. Uh, so Kisho Tenketsu. Okay, awesome. See right, that my, right there. My Japanese-speaking friends are just going to skewer me. For that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you will suffer for this interview. I'm sorry. I will. <laughs> it's worth it, though. It's really good. It totally is. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Alyssa Helms after this brief promotional break. Archivos, the new story development application from WonderThink Studios, will change the way you look at stories. Archivos takes a different approach to documenting your story setting. While most wikis and storytelling frameworks focus on documenting the elements of your stories, Archivos is more interested in the connections between those story elements. It's the relationships between characters and places and events that express the true structure and allure of your stories. As a storyteller, that's the awareness you need to strengthen and refine the crafting of your stories. Archivos really is the story development tool for today's storytellers. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital archivos your stories illuminated now let's get back to the conversation with Alice helms 
So in your uh, book plank interview of 2015, you mentioned some of your passion points as identity, gender, representation, global power, relationships, and activism. Mm-hmm. So you're keenly attuned to those issues, especially in the context of speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, your first book walks a very fine line of some of those issues of representation and cultural appropriation, which mm-hmm. Dave and I both agree is incredibly brave and badass of you. <laughs> And you pulled off in the best possible way, like in our honest opinion. Um, So we think you're awesome. But the question is, (laughs) so the specter of cultural appropriation, if you will, it it seems to have a very paralyzing influence on conscientious writers. So while you've spoken of this before, could you walk us through how you navigated those treacherous waters to achieve such marvelous tale? Uh, yes. And so one of the things, it's funny because, yeah, the, the way you said it has such a paralyzing impact on writers. Mm-hmm. I think it has a lot to do with stakes, right? That is, if I depict how nursing is not accurate, like if I mess that up or if I don't write lawyers well because I'm not Max Gladstone or something like that, <laughs> then, you know, yes, I will be called out because I didn't write lawyers well and, you know, appropriately so. But I don't really hurt anyone, right? I don't hurt lawyers, right? Right. And so the whole thing with uh, cultural appropriation and just representation and diversity in writing is because the the stakes are much higher, and and you should care more about getting that wrong than getting lawyer you know lawyers wrong because you can cause harm, and you we have historically caused harm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's one of the things that because I did you know, my graduate and my undergrad work in anthropology and archaeology. And the, the, you know, the, the genocide that occurred in Guatemala in the 80s was it justified in part by the narratives that archaeologists wrote about the Maya no longer existing, right? That they had, were a culture that had died out, there were no more Maya. And so contemporary indigenous Maya were killed, <laughs> With that as a justification. I mean, you want to say that's an extreme version and nobody's going to do that because of fiction. But then you look at some of the things that are happening today and you're like, no, there are going to be people who are disenfranchised and people who are harmed if you do this stuff poorly, if you don't do your research. And so I understand the, the anxiety and the fear of not doing it right for that reason. I think there's the other side of the reason of, you know, being afraid to not do it right or being afraid of being called out on it because you're not a bad person and you just mean to do well and, you know, you don't deserve to be called out on this. And th- that is a different kind of fear. Yeah, that's different. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about that recently. And again, I don't think I'm answering your question. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We've got but time. We've got time. So what that, what that really brings out is that lawyers, you know, and the whole thing about like, can I write lawyers well or not? The reason that that's different and why that's not appropriation is because when you think about appropriation versus exchange, appropriation is always about a power imbalance between two groups. And so I, as a white person writing about Asian people, there's a power imbalance in there. And so I have that much more responsibility to really educate myself and to really be aware of the issues of representation and to be aware of the choices that I'm making and do a lot of research to get it right, because I'm not writing about lawyers. <laughs> right. I'm writing about a situation where I uh, come from a group that in my culture and society here in the United States has a dominant position of power in a lot of ways. And so 
I think it comes down to, yeah, just educating yourself, doing a lot of research. Tempest Bradford, Kay Tempest Bradford had a recent article that she wrote for NPR, um, like this past, or this past summer, it's still summer, uh, called... Uh, called Cultural Appropriation is, in fact, Indefensible. And it's an amazing article, not just for the things that she lays out, but she links to a bunch of other resources that if you're worried, if you want to learn more about it, if you want to know how you can be better about doing it, like that's, you know, you start hitting those kind of resources. Um, Tempest and Nisi Shaw have a writing the other workshop that they do online. And continual education is really where you kind of hit it. Sure. And for, for me with the Dragons of Heaven and how I approached it is, so like, I, you, like you said, this started out as a character fic, right? I was Missy Masters was a San Francisco superhero uh, who's taking on her grandfather's uh, mantle. So she was this legacy hero, this idea of this legacy hero that, that's fun to play with because you've got this you know, thing that you're living up to that you can't really achieve until you finally do. And when I started thinking about turning it you know, into a novel and I was playing with the trope of, you know, urban fantasy being told in the first person, I didn't feel comfortable adopting an Asian voice. And so it was one of those things where I could have made my main character, you know, Chinese or made her Hapa, but I didn't feel comfortable speaking in that voice. That was a kind of appropriation that I was not willing to do. Other people have other um, approaches to that, and it all really depends on execution of whether they do it well or not. Mm -hmm. And so... For me, then it became, all right, so I've got this white girl who's acting mostly in in Chinese and Chinese-American spaces. How do I avoid her becoming the Iron Fist, right? Because <laughs> right. <laughs> seems to be the conversation going on, right? How is she not Danny Rand? Thank you. Um, Thank you yeah. so much for asking that question. <laughs> yeah, it's the obvious question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and for me, it came down to making her self-aware of the problems that she could run into so you know so that she would be aware of the the traps and the tropes be aware of the white savior complex be aware of all that stuff and make choices based on that awareness and so I did that I also made it so that a lot of the Asian actors who were in this a lot of the agency was in their hands right a lot of the action was because of things they were doing and so when they were intervening in their own culture, it was their actions as much as the protagonist, Missy. Sure. And finally, the two places where I really felt the, the choices I made were very complicated and important were uh, the problem that Missy has to solve in the first book uh, was a product of her own actions and mistakes. And so it wasn't the, you know, the white savior coming in and dealing with a problem that is of no relation to her or anything like that. It was a problem that, you know, she was there and she, because of not really understanding what was going on, she made some problems and then she left and then she came back and then she dealt with the problems that were a result of what she had done originally. And so I tried to have it be that rather than her coming in and solving somebody else's problems. And then finally, in the climax, when uh, she actually does have a moment where she gives into the white savior kind of thing because she can't she can't imagine another option that ends up being her biggest mistake right and the <laughs> the problems that come from her choosing in that making a bad choice in that moment end up being the problems she has to solve in the second book <laughs> um, <laughs> that's awesome so i i won't say i handled everything really well because there are always places that you can do better and you can learn but i felt like making those choices was 
problematizing the whole like Danny Rand, white savior, that kind of thing. Sure. The other thing I, I really tried to keep aware of was just problems generally in representation, uh, especially with uh, Asian characters, there's a tendency to kind of exoticize females or to make them passive in particular ways. And there's a huge problem with the demasculization of, of Asian men. And so I was trying to not do either of those things and also trying to walk the tightrope line of not demasculinizing my male characters while at the same time my main characters in a romance with one of them. And so making it more about them as persons and their you know, their dynamic, their interaction, their uh, disagreements, rather than... Uh, sure. Making it between two people rather than exactly. a man and a woman, necessarily. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and the fact that you made those narrative choices, that, that you saw and recognized those issues, and then modified the narrative so that they were addressed almost in a meta way, really, kind of, if you think about it. Um, I, th- I think that that's that's huge. But you didn't. Well, I guess maybe with your anthropology background, you might have. But you did a huge amount of research in preparation for this first, you know, primary sources, uh, uh, lots of, of cultural and societal research. What did you tease from that? What were you looking for as a writer that you could then use to inform and strengthen your story? Uh, you know, it's 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 really hard to nail that down because so much of research is what it's sticks? not looking for a particular <laughs> thing. It's it's just yeah, building up your your base to kind of uh, to to draw from, and just building your awareness. And so yeah, it's it's never like looking for a particular thing. It's it's archaeology. It's doing a survey, right? Sure. <laughs> it's uh, you know casting your net wide, doing pit survey because you can't obviously hit everything and know everything. But you know, trying to do like a section here, a section there, a section there, and forming a map of the entire territory, even though the map is never the territory, you get an idea about pitfalls and places where you need to be careful and things where you need to like look further into. And so, yeah, I did a ton of research, but it wasn't. A lot of it wasn't focused or dedicated research. It was a very wide, wide net, net of research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And look um, at you except- throwing archaeology terms out there. Pit <laughs> survey. <laughs> you know, it's the paradigm that informs everything is archaeology and anthropology and folklore. My my little paradigm. So yeah, it really is from a from a storyteller's perspective. I don't think there can be a better. Uh, a combination of scholastic pursuits than than anthropology, archaeology, and and sociology. That's that's they huge. are they are damned useful. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, the clock is ticking down. Actually, it's ticked out. But I'm gonna. It's my show. I can I can extend it. Um, <laughs> just real quick, I wanted to ask, um, and I think we talked about this when I interviewed you last year at Gen Con. But but let's let's hit it again because it's a fascinating topic. Uh, Dragons of Heaven, inspired by an RPG. We've all written RPG stories, and and you've even said in an interview that less than ten percent of that original game actually made it into the book. So. Uh, I, I, I'm, I can hear all of my listeners leaning into their various speakers and going, yes, I have stories I've written about my D&D characters. How can I make them a novel? <laughs> Alice, how can they make them into a novel? <laughs> um, well, that really depends. <laughs> <laughs> That's an open-ended question, uh, I know. It's a very open-ended question, and I guess, huh. Well, what are the differences between gaming storytelling and literary storytelling? Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, culling and focus and um, 
creating like a, a, a very clear single art. What I had to do with Missy was I had to cut out a lot of stuff that, you know, was perfectly fun and relevant in, in, you know, game context. But when I was telling the story, I really needed to just streamline her. I really needed to focus her on this particular narrative. I needed to cull out a lot of the world that just didn't matter to her particular story. And I needed to develop the bits of the world that did. So yeah, it was, it was taking something that was, you know, kind of all over the place and focusing it into uh, a narrative, like, and that's why the structure helps, like, you know, taking a structure and being like, all right, I'm going to beat this into this particular structure of, you know, here's, here are my climaxes, here are my beats, here's my streamlined character, here's my character arc and how this character is changing, you know, so the things that we don't think about when we're necessarily writing character fic are things that you need to kind of start to think about when write, when changing that into a story. So you need to figure, you know, is this, if I'm writing a game world, it, you know, then it might be a milieu story. And then you're trying to think of like, well, what are the techniques of writing a milieu story? You know, or if it's based on a character like mine is, then you need to figure out, all right, what's the character arc? Because the, you know, a character story is based on the person and their change over time of the story. You know, if it's a plot right. story, if it's an event, if it's a heist, then you've got the the beginning of the story is the breakdown of the old world and the end of the story is the establishment of the new world or the new world structure, or the new world order. And that's got uh, nothing to do with gaming storytelling. Gaming storytelling is, com- is the complete antithesis of that. In, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. You, because you're trying to keep things broader, you've, you know, things are more free form and improvisational. And so it's, yeah, it's, I mean, I have not done a lot of improv, but I wonder if it's very similar to the difference between improv and writing a play, right? You, sure. you take an improv and you, you turn it into a theatrical thing and you've got to cull and edit and refine and give it a point. There you go. Boom. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Well, the the, uh, the the clock has has sprouted wings and and <laughs> is looking balefully at me as it opens its toothy maw uh, and I'm assuming that means we're out of time which is which is always a sadness um a list this has been delightful I would actually genuinely like to have you back and talk more about milieu stories and and you know those different narrative structures and of course the Telidaplex really must be a topic of discussion as well. <laughs> Can we have you back at some point in the future? I would love that. Um, actually, I, I would even suggest, so you know that Marie Brennan is a close friend of mine. Yes. And one of the things that we have been doing recently is uh, in the game that I'm running, we've been writing a lot of collaborative stuff. Oh, nice. And we're thinking about doing some collaborative work. And so I think it might be fun, and I'll pitch this to her, but if we were to do like a brainstorming collaborative thing with Ooh. us as your writers, Ooh. because we've never done collaborative work before, and we've got things that we love to do and we have some overlap and I think it would be great fun to bring that as a brainstorm maybe. That I don't know would be would. huge. That would be awesome. And Marie's been on the show before so she already knows yeah. the format so fabulous. Oh my God. I will I'm, pitch it to her tomorrow. Do, absolutely. We will make that happen. We'll have to We'll have to ponder who do we bring in as the guest host to brainstorm yeah. about that. Yeah, that's big mojo there. A lot of there. pressure for someone now. <laughs> that's awesome. Very cool. Marie, Wow, that was there was gold. There was stuff. There was there was wisdom being offered forth. What what's sticking out for you? What are you what are you taking with you from that one? 
Oh, it's amazing, honestly. I've uh, I've was taking down notes. I know, right? <laughs> I Me too. Like, <laughs> like, I I need to think of some stuff. I think, honestly, for me, that sticks is just the um, and I, it's not something that was said per se, but saying that paralysis, like when it came to the cultural appropriation stuff, wasn't necessarily because the material couldn't be used, but it was because you were actually trying to do it well. So the paralysis wasn't a bad thing. It just meant that you needed to push more so that you did it better and to learn to do it better. And I like that message. I do too. I do too. And, and, you know, any, any fear that you have is, it really is an opportunity. You know, I sound like a motivational (laughs) poster when I say that, but, but really it's, it's an opportunity for you to recognize something that, you know, in your heart, you, you should be able to do. And, and for whatever reason are, are terrified of not doing it well or whatever. Uh, and, and seizing that and pushing forward through it. I think absolutely. I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. And I thought our list did a wonderful job of articulating the different facets of that particular paralysis and, yeah. and exploring the one very nicely for me. It was, I'm, I'm sorry. It was even before we started the interview, the whole concept of the Talidoplex. Uh, not only do I like saying the word over and over again, but just the concept of uh, an analysis of structure, of input, of process, and the way that we take the things that we consume. And as geeks and nerds, we, we are consuming a lot of the same things. We're drinking from the same stream, maybe farther upstream or maybe deeper into the middle. But there's a lot of that similar content, Game of Thrones, yada, yada. And the way that each of us individually consumes and then alchemizes that into our own unique expression is fascinating to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm serious, Alyssa. We're going to, we're going to have to rock on the, uh, the Talidoplex uh, together <laughs> and explore, explore that more. That's awesome. Very that cool. Oh, uh, indeed. Well, friends, that was fabulous. Of course it always is. I don't know how we pull that off. Well, we have good guests, I guess that's, that's a, that's our secret <laughs> sauce right there. We bring great guests on and ask them good questions. Uh, but here's the wonder and delight of the Archivos podcast network. As awesome as that was, if you come back in seven days, it's going to get even better. Cause we're going to have a list back. Of course, Marie and I will be here. And then we're going to add into that, that alchemical equation, that algorithm of awesomeness, uh, a guest writer, a courageous guest writer, creative and courageous and they will pitch a story idea that all of us will brainstorm and if you've never done that before buckle up buttercup because it's going to be a rocking good time but it's seven days from now i know that's a long darn time marie help our listeners out between now and seven days from now what on earth can they do that'll make that time just at least be productive if not fly by that is a good question there is a lot that they could do but I think I'm going to recommend, because I'm feeling the creative juices really, really pouring out right now, kind of out of my ears. And, and I'm going to say that uh, you should all look into your telidoplex, <laughs> <laughs> and you should all write at least 300 words a day for the next seven days until we come back and brainstorm. Just do it, enjoy, scramble those images, see what spews out of you. That might have not have been the correct word, but there you go. See what happens. <laughs> no, I'm sure. I'm sure many of our listeners can empathize with the notion of spew <laughs> as, as that first draft comes out onto the page. Exactly. Don't worry about it, but just do it. Do it and be happy. That's a good assignment. You have your homework, people. Marie Billadell has spoken. Make it so. Rock the Talidoplex. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the. Cr- 
great googly moogly. Look for the awesomeness that's out there in the world. And if you seek it out actively and, and intentfully, I promise you, friends, it's out there. You will find it. We'll be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of Archivos Insights is copyright 2017 by WonderThink Studios and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. To find out what that means and how you can use this content in your own presentations, visit www.creativecommons.org. Theme music for this episode of Archivos Insights was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation, or just learn more about the Archivos Podcast Network, visit our website at www.archivos.digital and click the podcast link. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash archivospodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at podcast at archivos.digital. Thanks for listening.